So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. You, however, well, let's go back to verse 8 because that's important. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But for, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. So in verse 12, clearly tells us and uses this word debtors. And so it says that we are debtors, not to the flesh, which insinuates, though, that we are debtors. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. If this was the only verse, we might be pushing it a little bit. But the Bible does tell us that we are debtors. But we are not debtors to the flesh. In verse 13, we see, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And so we have these things that are going on. What's it mean to be a debtor to the flesh? What does it mean to be in debt to God? What does it mean to be in debt with, with anybody? And in verse 11, if you go back just one verse, we see that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, God the Father, if he dwells in you who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not according to the flesh. So this is the debt that we have, that we have the spirit of life. And this is what he's saying in verse 11. The spirit of life gives life. Now, we can read that, and it's like, okay, we're all alive. I get that. You know, what's, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, we're told by Paul in Ephesians, it's like, and no, you're not really alive. You're dead in your sin and trespasses. You know, we're all obviously <coughs> breathing, and um, walking around and you know, getting around at one level or another. We're alive, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual life and death. And spiritual death is, is worse than physical death because physical death is not the end. There's the spirit that lasts forever. And you'll either be, your spirit will either be with the Lord forever in his presence or your spirit will be <clears throat> spending an eternity in hell paying for the sins, paying the debt that we owe to God. And that debt can never be repaid over all eternity. It's so much that it can never be repaid. The things that we've done cannot be reversed. But God gives us this sort of parable, this sort of way of looking at it in the idea of a debt. And so we are debtors to the Spirit because the Spirit gives life. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who has given us life. 
And this is why in the Lord's Prayer we pray this. So let's just briefly go to Matthew chapter 6 where we see the Lord's Prayer. And, and, and knowing that we are Presbyterians who tend to use this strange phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, for some reason apparently replacing the words of the Bible with our own words um, instead of saying trespasses. So let's look at it and figure out why we do this strange thing. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 9, is the Lord's Prayer. And we've already read this passage, so you see how this begins, which actually is our Father. And so we know we're going to talk about adoption, and we're going to talk about him being our Father. So we're going to come back to this prayer, because this prayer talks about two things. God is our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. I mean, sometimes I just want to say, rather than just if I'm in an ecumenical audience where there's other people who are not Presbyterians, if I just want to say, you know, when we say the Lord's Prayer today, let's read it from Scripture. Let's just read it straight out of the Bible. And then I wonder how many people, sorry, pet peeve of mine, maybe I should step away. I wonder at that point how many people are still going to say trespasses because doggone it, that's what they're going to say and that's what you're supposed to say. I've been to funerals where I've announced that the person who here lays was a Presbyterian, and therefore when we say the Lord's Prayer, we're going to say debts and debtors. If you don't mind, this is what we'll do. And I'll hear people go, trespasses. Like they'll say the Lord's Prayer in open rebellion. Everybody's like, anger, I'm saying the Lord's Prayer. It's like, I don't think... I don't think you understand what we're doing here. And it's, it's, a, it's a small point, actually. It's not really. It depends on the level of uh, which somebody's making this point. Because if you go to verse 14 in Matthew chapter 6, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you, forgive, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So he uses the word trespasses. It's not a bad word to use for sin. There's sin, there's debt, there's trespasses. But here in the Bible, the word is debt and debtors. And the only reason I'm, I don't typically make a big deal about it unless it comes up in conversation in some way. But it is what the Lord says here. In the Latin Vulgate, in one um, translation where a guy named Jerome translated it into Latin, he incorrectly translated it uh, into a Latin word that means trespasses. That's the, the version of the Vulgate that the Catholic Church uses. And so it somehow comes into our English from the Catholic Church, from the Latin Vulgate, and then Jerome has another version, and he says, that wasn't right, we'll change it. So it's supposed to be what it is here, debts and debtors. But this translation comes directly from the Greek anyway. But I just want to talk about, why do we say debts? Because I've also, as I've talked about this with other people, and mentioned that it's actually biblical, I've had people say to me, um, well, it's still better to pray trespasses, because debts just doesn't really... That didn't quite carry the, the meaning. And I'm like, yes, it does carry the meaning. There's a reason the Lord in this place. Now, if you go to Luke where he prays it again, I think it's in Luke, he says, forgive us our sins. So this is something that Jesus did not just teach one time. He taught more than once. And I'm sure he, he said it in different ways at different times. But this is what he's saying is we're asking to be forgiven in the same way that we forgive other people, which is a scary thing. But one of the things he's teaching us is, you see how the spirits that work within you and the way you're beginning to forgive other people in a way that's supernatural? That's the, that's the Holy Spirit working within you. So he's intentionally, Christ is intentionally calling us to take this idea of sin, debt, trespasses that against God and saying this also has to play itself out through your lives and the way you deal with other people. 
So God never, as he wants us to become more like him, then one of the primary places we have to go to become like him is in our forgiveness of other people. And it can be difficult. So why debts and debtors? And the, it, it's just, <clears throat> my first response to that is, why not? What's, what's, why not the word debts? And I think it's really because in our day and age, um, we, we have a lot of debt. I mean, we, we run up debt. I, I use a credit card for everything I use almost because it's, it's supposedly safer and you earn, you earn credit on it. You know, it's like it, it ends up costing us more in the long run, but, you know, there we are. But that's debt. We have a, a debt that some, if you own a house, you have a mortgage debt that we're said, well, that's okay because then you get uh, tax credit on your um, interest you pay on it and stuff. So it's like that's the kind of debt that we typically deal with. Um, and if somebody's in terrible debt, I mean, terrible, you can't get out of it, then we have bankruptcy laws. It's like, well, you can get out of it, you know. So it's going to mess your credit up, so you're going to have bad, it's going to be hard to get, you know, get debt, you know, go in debt in the future more, but in a few more years, you'll be able to get right back into it. And so when we're praying to somebody, you know, forgive us our debts, not that big of a deal, you know, it's not that big of a deal to us, but, you know, one of the things, you know, again, you know, I read the Christmas Carol every year in the 1951, Alistair Sim, black and white version of a Christmas Carol, the best one that was produced, has a good, you know, where he's out there, and he's saying, are there no prisons, or the debtor prison, you know, it's just like, you could go to prison if you were in debt. Charles Dickens, who wrote this, um, his, his father went into great debt, and his family was sent to the, to the work prisons. They had to go to, to, to poor prisons, to, to debtors' prison. And when Charles Dickens was little, he was left on the streets by himself. And so when you read a lot of these things, it's like he's writing from growing up like that. And so when we're reading about forgive us our debts, it's, we don't get it. because and, this, and back in Jesus' time, even worse. I mean, if you, you're in debt... And the more debt you're in, you just end up in slavery or in prison. That's it for you. There's no way out. If it's bad enough, what are you going to do? There's no government coming to rescue you. And that's something that we are also used to, having rescuers and rescuers that always come after us. There's no rescuer. To, to cry, forgive me my debt. The cry is louder depending on the size of the debt and the the size of the debt. And the size of our debt is so great because of the one to whom we're now indebted. And so what God says to in one of his kingdom parables, Christ is talking and he says, there's a man who owned like a gajillion dollars. He owned so much money, several million dollars he owes. And he, and he, he just can't pay it back. He begs and the, and the guy says, tell you what, forgiven. Debt's forgiven. I imagine that. And it's hard again for us to imagine because it can go bankruptcy court. It's like, no, your life is over as you know it. It's it for you. You're in this kind of debt. It's like, this is, this is not ending well for you. This is, this is almost death sentence type thing for you. And then he says, you're free. I mean, that's like the most joyous you can imagine. I know everybody in here has had a bill that was overwhelming, and then it gets taken care of. Hopefully, you've had the experience of it getting taken care of, or something coming in, and miraculously, it's like, oh, you know, oh, you dance a little jig. You know, something happens where you just, something good happens financially, and it's like, amazing. And then, but this is like off the scale. And so he shows this guy then, he's walking around, he's doing his jig, and some guy comes up and just owes him a little bit of money. And he looks at him, he says, ah, hey, Throws him into prison. The guy that had been forgiven so much. And then the guy that had forgiven him finds out about it and says, tell you what, I take it back. 
you're not forgiven. And so what God is telling us isn't that you can lose your salvation. He isn't telling us that you can be uh, have your debt forgiven by God and then lost. But if you are truly a person who has truly been forgiven these great debts and you truly understand what God has done for you, you're not going to see that kind of thing happening. And if it does, there's going to be weeping and, and crying and cries for repentance for God to forgive us once again for being so hypocritical. So this is what he's telling us is this debt that we owe to God is, is magnificent and overwhelming, but it's been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And so in Romans 8, he says, you're not debtors to the flesh. And that's an interesting thing to be saying, because if you're debtors to the flesh, it means you owe it something. It's got a hold on you. It can grab you back when it wants to. It has a right to be able to say, "Mm -mm, you're mine. You owe me. So you don't owe anything to the flesh, nothing to the flesh. And so he's, he's, he's making this very interesting point because, again, it comes right after he says, the Spirit of God gives life. And then we pray, forgive us our debts, the obedience that we owe to God, the love that we owe to God, our lives which we owe to God. We can never repay the price that was paid for us. And even our very own faith, we're told, is more valuable than gold or silver and all of these things. And that's a gift given to us. And yet, still we fall so far short. And in the same way, we remember to forgive those that we hold to be in our debt, the ones that we believe, you've wronged me. I deserve to be treated differently. I deserve to be held in greater honor. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And we had to be able to say, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Help me from my heart to forgive, to let it go, just to be able to move forward, take my hands from around their necks so that I can be released from this anger and pain and resentment that I have, that I might say, I've been forgiven much and I glorify you for all things. We have been forgiven much, and therefore, We owe God praise and glory in all of our lives. And he calls us to remember this in our dealings with others. And not only these, but to continue to, to not only this, but to continue to follow the sinful nature from which we've been delivered and saved um, is the way of death. And sin is worse than we know. It's something that we have to come to terms with. It claims its pleasures and goodness, like you'll get, you know, I, mean, I can give you pleasure, I can give you goodness, I can give you all the things you're kind of hoping for, and it's not going to cause you, you're not surely going to die, it's going to be okay, but in the end it does lie, sin lies to us, and it creates things that are, that are darker than we know, and the Bible even refers to as death. Then 8.13 again, you know, it says, if you live according to flesh, you die, but If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we've got two different things that are happening. If you live according to the flesh, that's death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So we call this, here's two really cool words. It's mortification and vivification. So mortification is we get the word mortician, all these words, which means death. So you're supposed to mortify the flesh, die to sin, 
and vivification as you begin to live to righteousness. And so that's what's supposed to be happening in our lives. But it's very interesting here because you look, because it's not on your own. He doesn't just say um, in verse, where are we, 12, he says, put to death the deeds of the body. Because if that's all it is, it's like, okay. And then you're back in Romans chapter 7, where it's like, I do things I don't want to do. I can't do things. It's like, who will release me from this wretched body of death? That's where we are. But what he says is, by the Spirit, you put to death. So this is an interesting thing. It's like, you are called to put to death the deeds of the body. You're called to do it. It's something we participate in. It's something we're supposed to think about, pray about, be involved in. But you do it by the Spirit. And so this is something we have to get because Paul spends a great deal of time making sure we understand you're justified by faith alone. You have the Spirit because God has called you to himself and you're justified by faith alone. And because you're God's and his Spirit dwells in you, then you have his Spirit dwelling in you. And by this Spirit... Put to death the deeds of the body. And this is what verse 14 is saying to us. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so we have to be reminded in verse 9. So you back up just a little bit. Verse 8 says, if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. In verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in Christ, if in fact, God's Spirit dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So believers, we have the Spirit of Christ. And He leads us. So we have the Spirit's leading. And so the title, the Spirit leads, the Spirit's leading, it's like He is leading and this is His leading. It belongs to Him and it is of Him. He leads us to desire holiness. Sean prayed it in, in his prayer of, of confession of sin that he gives us these desires to, to put to death, to, to, to hate sin. And so he leads us into holiness and righteousness, to hate And then he enables us to live these kind of, this righteousness. So we're never going to achieve this uh, level of perfection in this life because we still have the flesh that still is at work within us. But what God says is, Put up the fight. Fight the good fight. Because what your flesh wants to do is kill you. And you might immediately think, okay, that means he's going to cause me to kill myself. It's like, well, yeah, possibly. But that's not primarily what he's talking about. What he's talking about here primarily is, you want to die? If I want that guy to die, if I'm Satan and I see a believer, and I want him to die, what I got to do is remove the spirit from him, which he knows he can't do if he's a true believer, but I can remove his faith from him, which he knows he can't do if he's a true believer, but I can make him doubt, I can make him weep, I can make him cry, and what we learn in the wisdom literature of Job is that Satan says you, he only praises you because you have blessed him, and you put a hedge of protection around him, but if you remove his blessing and you remove his protection, he will curse you to your face. And then we learn, and God says, and God's the one that brought this up, to teach us. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And that's when he says these things about Job. And that's what Satan still believes, the flesh still believes, the world still believes. They, it, it, your flesh knows in some sense, in some way, that there is a God and it hates it. 
the world knows they, and they hate God and the things of God. And the demons certainly know and they hate God and the people of God and the things of God. So what they want to do is to have you join them in this lack of belief. And the way they think is the only thing Satan has to throw at a believer because he can't steal your salvation. The only thing he has is to steal your joy, to steal your faith, to steal your hope, to steal your peace that surpasses our understanding. That's his goal. And so if you look hard enough, deeply enough into the abyss, so we'll talk about the Grinch, and stare into the abyss, you know, and smile as I slip into madness, or whatever his line is. Hey, that's what happens. I mean, you start staring into the darkness, and you forget there's light. You close your eyes willingly and decide to go deep into despair. That's a hard place to come out of. But God, by his spirit and by the help of, of other Christians that he enables to come out of the different areas, that's why we encourage, encourage and strengthen, comfort one another all the more as we see a day approaching. Because we've all been in the darkness. We've all seen people that go into this darkness. But as children of God, we're called to be able to say, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death. And many of us maybe have walked through many valleys of shadows of death. The comforting presence of the Holy Spirit is the only thing we have that gets us through. Unless shiny presents pop up and goodness and all these blessings and all this stuff to cause us to forget our God. And then we're also perfect and happy because of all this stuff. And then what has to happen in order for you to call somebody? I mean, if you have a person that's living in opulence and then you take it from them, I mean, we see in the, you know, in the crash happened in was it, the 1920s, people jumping from buildings because they've lost their fortunes. It's like, well, yeah, but they were as poor as everybody else. A lot of other people just as poor, but they went from here to here. And then what causes people to, to hate one another and what causes you know, civic unrest and stuff when we talk about the disparity between the, um, the wealthy and the rich, it's like there can be people who are relatively richer relatively poor than other people. Even when you go to Haiti, I, I remember asking some people that came to translate from us, and they were from Pop, you know, from the city. And I was like, the city is poor. Papua New Guinea, I mean, uh, Port-au-Prince. It is dirt poor. But then you go out into the mountains, and it's like, there, there, is, there is dirt poor, and then there's, 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 you only had dirt. I mean, there's like, and I've asked these guys, like, when you see this, does this seem poor to you? And they're like, yeah, because for me, it was hard to distinguish even because it all was so poor. And then what I also saw was, interestingly, it's like a lot of the people that we were witnessing to were not allowed in some of the churches because they were poor. <laughs> it was just like, you're all poor. What are you thinking? But then you could see the levels of poverty. And so what happens to us is we don't see that with us. And so all that, if we find our value, our happiness, our peace in stuff, all that has to happen is for Satan to go, pip, 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 pip. It's gone. And all of a sudden, where are we? And that's what happened to Job. And Job is like, I know God, and I love God, and I trust God. God is my trust. Even though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And his wife's like, curse God and die. He says, you're talking about one of the foolish women. You can't, you can't do this. And so this is what the Spirit's work is doing within us. As it's enabling us to do these things. Now, if you look at uh, Romans 7, verse 6, and it says, 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Having died to, that's called passive tense. You have died to, you didn't do anything to that. The Holy Spirit did this work to you. And this is what we see in the sacrament of baptism. So that what baptism represents is the beginning of a Christian life where you died to sin, you're raised to new life. You don't baptize yourself. You, you, you are baptized. And it's not, and there's only one baptism, the Bible says. So you have water baptism and you have Holy Spirit baptism. So wait a second, that's two baptisms. No, they're sacramentally united. The thing that this one signs and symbolizes the reality of Holy Spirit baptism. And when that happens, we're passive recipients of the work of the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Christ, the Holy Spirit working within us, so we're supposed to be agents of this as we're sharing the gospel of people, but we are put to death and we die to sin. But then in chapter 8, verse 3, we also read, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, and then we go to um, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. Christ had to work within us to save us from our sins so that we would die to sin. But now that you're dead to sin, we are called to put to death something. So we're called to do this. We're called, but it's only by the Holy Spirit, an active working of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see in the, in the sacrament of communion. Uh, it's Christ's death. It's not our death. But when we partake of this, we're doing what Paul says in just a moment is partaking in the sufferings of Christ. That's what this represents. His body broken, died, crucified for us. His blood shed, poured out for us. When we partake in this, we're saying, I'm partaking of the sufferings of Christ. I'm partaking of the, the death of Christ for me. So if a person goes to this table without any faith, they don't really believe this. Well, it's what you're proclaiming. It's what you're taking within yourself is that Christ died and suffered on the cross. And without that death and suffering being united to you by faith, you're the one that's going to go through this. So you're eating and drinking condemnation to yourself because you're proclaiming the thing to be true. You're proclaiming that I have to have Christ's death for me or I die forever. And I'm eating and drinking to it and I have no faith. So that's why there's warnings. That's why there's warnings to also say you're not caring for one another. Discern the body of Christ because there's more to the Christian faith than you and Jesus at home alone. Not having anything to do with that movie. But it's not just you two guys where you're, you're this me and my faith and I'm out here and I don't need the church. Lie from the pit of hell. You're saved into the body of believers. Now, finding a good church, that's another story, and that's a difficult thing. But Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If you let me in, I'll dine with you and eat with you. So if you're in a church that's preaching the gospel at all, then you're receiving Christ. But keep looking. If, you, if, you're, if somehow you're hearing this and you're not in church or you talk to people who are in churches, there's churches and there's churches and there's synagogues of Satan. Beware that not all churches are preaching the gospel at all. Some churches are making people twice the children of hell as they were before they walk in the doors. Be aware of it. Don't be jerks about it, but proclaim the gospel and say, does what you hear, does what you believe line up with the gospel? And it may be that what a person believes is not what's being preached, and they're getting the wrong messages even though the truth is being preached. 
But if anybody's going to put death, sin to death in the body, it's only by the Holy Spirit. It's not by being in a, a church or an organization or anywhere you happen to go, any group of people you're involved with, any, anything you do in your life that's trying to get you to live a better life, if it's apart from the Spirit, it is not something that's going to be efficacious to your salvation or pleasing to God. It will just be used by Satan, the world, and the flesh to say you don't even need Jesus. You're fine. You got it. And it can be anything. It can be good things that are typically good, or it can be bad things that are always bad that make you feel good about yourself. But that good feeling is what Satan wants you to feel apart from Christ. Knowing that deep down inside, you don't have the joy, and he can rob people of this to keep people from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. John Murray says the Spirit gives us, this is how the Spirit works, is the Spirit gives us a clear-sighted recognition of the evil that is within us is truly evil and that it needs to be killed. And as believers, we are not helpless to do this. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. To be led by the Spirit doesn't mean that you hear the voice of God directly telling you do this or don't do that, but it means that the Spirit leads you into righteousness. The Holy Spirit's leading is to lead you into righteousness and holy living. That's the work of the Spirit. He calls you to this by His Word in the Holy Scriptures to believe and to do. He enlivens your heart and enables you to believe and is even the author and perfecter of your faith. You are passive in your rebirth, baptism, but you're active in your new life, which is Communion, Lord's Supper, but it's still by his power and enabling and filling, but you're called to take, to eat, to do these things and to take him out with you. So there's a difference between obedience before the fall of man in Adam and after our redemption in Christ. Before the fall in Adam and people who are still in Adam are still living in that pre-fall state. I mean, in the after fall state, being kicked out of the garden the demand is for perfect, personal, and exact obedience. The demand is perfect, personal, and exact obedience. And then after the fall in Christ, for those who are in Christ, obedience is accepted for the sake of Christ mixed with imperfection. But it's accepted in Christ. So our obedience isn't perfect, perfect obedience. And you know as a believer... And if you know any believer who claims sinless perfection and you know anything about them, you know, well, that's another sin they're adding to their list of lies because they're not sinlessly perfect. I know nobody who's sinlessly perfect. I mean, it seems to my eyes that some people come closer than others, but that's just because I don't see deep enough into their hearts. The Lord of the universe, the holy of holy, the holiest God of the universe, he's the one who will determine who is holy and who is not. And only Christ Jesus is holy. And if you're united to him by faith, you have your spirit within him, we're called to obedience. But it is now obedience accepted in Christ, accepted in the beloved, and it is always mixed with imperfection. And this is because in Christ we've received justification, the legal declaration of our perfect sinless standing before God only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to us, and received by faith alone. You have to keep that right. Because if you begin to try to be perfected apart from your understanding of who you are in Christ, you're going to try to be perfected in the flesh. And that's going to be satanic eventually. And he's going to use it to bring you down. Because you'll never achieve it. But in Christ, we can strive towards holiness. Because we have a Holy Spirit within us. 
that's doing this next thing he's saying is crying out to you, you are sons of God. 14, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And I thought about making that, then it's like, there's a whole other sermon. But I think we need to connect these things. That we need to connect our call to live holy, righteous lives to the fact that we have a Holy Spirit. It's a spirit of adoption so that God hasn't just saved you. God doesn't just justified you. God hasn't even just poured out his love into your hearts and given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's gone out of his way to adopt you as his son. Male, female, you are adopted as sons, having the legal right to all the inheritance that becomes that of adopted children. And even in our um, day, we adopt kids because they need parents. Well, back in the Roman days, when Paul is writing, you adopted kids because you needed an heir. I mean, that was what's going to happen to my stuff. You know, but when you were adopted into a family, you are adopted as a legal son. And so we all receive this adoption of sons so that we receive this inheritance. And we're going to look at that. But this obedience is the obedience that a son, a child, offers to a loving father. And so we have this word, Abba, Father. And so a lot of abuse happens to this word, Abba. Av is just the word in the Hebrew or Aramaic, actually, for father. And some people say, well, it's like saying daddy or pops or something like that. So that we approach God. Hey, pops. Hey, hey, man, what's up? How you doing? It's like, no, 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 no. You're still speaking to the God of the universe who happens to be your father. But the Jews in the Old Testament and before Christ, they never, they knew that God was their father. And there's the universal fatherhood of God where in a sense everybody created as God as their father. But not like this. Not where he's your, your father or he's actually, you are his son in this way, and you inherit things. You're brought out of the family of Adam, and you're brought into the family of Christ, with God the Father as our father, Christ as our brother. That relationship. So the Jew, the Jew understood that as, as good Jews, they had God as their father, but they didn't call him that. Jesus always called him that. And so whenever you see our father... If Jesus is speaking Aramaic, he's saying our Abba. And then it gets translated in the Greek pater, which is father. And there's one place in the Bible where they maintained both of the words, where you see Jesus praying Abba, Father. And it's when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to have, beginning to have the sin of mankind laid upon him. And he says, if it's possible for this to pass. And he cries to God, Abba, Abba. Pater, Abba, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, but thine be done. But we're told to call him this, because Jesus always calls him this, and the Spirit within us, the Spirit of Christ, is going to naturally call him this, because we're brought into that kind of relationship. And there's only one time where the Bible records a prayer of Jesus where he doesn't call his Father, Abba, or Father, and it's when he's on the cross, and he's suffering, descending into to hell, and quoting Psalm 22, or Psalm 22, quoting Christ. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's seeking the restoration of that relationship. 
so that, again, I can call you Abba, Father. But apart from that, it's my God, my God. Jesus is sin on the cross. He doesn't become sinful, but he represents sin on the cross. And from that place of death and sin, he still cries out to his God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's brought back, it is finished. And it's brought back, and he leads many sons to glory. First fruits of the sons of God. And so Paul's continually in Romans bringing us deeper and deeper into our understanding of our relationship with God. Not just theological concepts, but theological concepts that lead us to understand the relationship that God has to his people and the difference that it makes. And I have to go just first John chapter three. This is where he is real close to. To Revelation, so First John chapter three, verses one and two, he says this: "See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is." And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so this is what Paul is closing us well in this little section in Romans chapter 8, what he says here in closing. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Why do you believe these things? Ultimately, primarily, Spirit bears witness. But if you only believe because I got a spirit feeling, uh, no. It's, it's with, you also have information given to you in Scripture. But information given to you from Scripture without this Holy Spirit in your, in your heart is just information. So it's both of these things, bearing witness that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God. There's a whole other sermon in that too. What's that mean? And the main thing is you're an heir of what? God like the Levites. They didn't get a piece of land. God was their inheritance. God is our inheritance. That means you get God. You got everything. The prodigal son runs away. He comes back. He's got half the father's stuff already. The, the elder brother's, you know, mad because the father's giving all his stuff away. Neither brother wanted to father. They just wanted to father's stuff. And when, when he finally returns, he tells the son, the elder brother, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. But this son of mine was dead and he's returned. But when you have the father, everything is his is yours. So if we're looking for his stuff and not just looking for him, and you're a believer, you're going to be very rejoiced. You're going to be rejoicing greatly in heaven because you're going to realize that stuff I was looking for is nothing. It's him. It's him. I mean, that's what you have now is him. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. This is what you have to be aware of and keep your eyes focused on. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can walk on water, as the song says. Not because you can do the miraculous, but because even the storms of this life are not enough to undo you. And it closes with this. You're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, providing we suffer with him 
in order that we might be glorified with him. And it's, it's one word, glorified with him, suffering with him, with fellow sufferers, fellow glorifidians. I had to make that word up because that's the way it works in Greek. You're fellow sufferers, you're also fellow glorifiers, glorifidistid people. That's, you've been glorified. Sharing in sufferings of Christ, bearing the burden, carrying the cross. I believe in this particular passage what Paul is saying is you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ because he's suffered for you and you're in him, united to him, and you're sharing in those sufferings and it's working itself out in this life now, but you're also sharing in his glory, which you've seen, but you haven't yet seen in the fullness. And I'm giving you myself now, I'm giving you this table, I'm giving you the ability to fight the good fight of faith. And you might with Paul say, I feel like I'm being poured out like a drink offering. But praise be unto God, he is at work in all of these things. And one day we'll be with him and we will see him as he is. And mind has not seen, eye has not, what is it? eye has not seen, mind has not conceived of the things that await us. So if anybody's ever told you what heaven's going to be like, you just got to look at him and go, you don't even come close. You don't even come close. And what awaits us is not worthy to be compared to the sufferings that we're currently experiencing. The troubles of this world aren't worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. So we've got, like, the sun's coming through. It's just like, this is the light. We are the light of the world. Especially when we're going through darkness and trials. That's when we come together. And that's when the Spirit among us shows us, his, manifests His presence the most as He leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy, you are good, you are perfect, you are true. You cannot clear the guilty. You instead sent your own son to die on a cross for us, for your people, so that those who are in you um, are punished in Christ. All of our sin have dealt with and dealt with to the full in Christ Jesus. And then you've given us your spirit that we might, as we still struggle with the flesh, that you've given us the spirit by which we are to be putting sin to death in the flesh, mortifying the flesh so that we might be vivified. But we know we fall far short. Help us to continue to therefore preach this gospel to ourselves, that all who are in you shall never perish but have eternal life. So we thank you that you even call us to a, a meal as a sacrament, that we're to eat and we're to drink, renewing gospel, table, fellowship with you, in our relationship. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.